Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast from Fulcrum Strategies. I'm Matthew Hindley from Flatlining.net, and with me, as he has been, is the President and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and Economist, Ron Howergan. Ron, welcome back to the Flatlining Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here, as always. Well, as you may have heard from the State of Union a few weeks ago, there seems to be uh, some uniform decision-making that no one's going to cut Medicare. Um, but we have a number of articles that we want to talk about today about how to reform Medicare and how to reform our healthcare system overall. So we're going to spend our program today uh, talking about that. I don't want to talk about the State of the Union too much just because we're so far away from it already, and I think everyone has pretty much heard everything they need to hear about it. But we're going to talk about uh, a few different uh things related to healthcare reform. And Ron, the first thing I want to talk to you about is a uh, opinion piece uh, published in The Hill uh, several weeks ago by Michael Burgess and Eric Hargan uh, called The Future of Healthcare Reform Is Now. And they really want to focus on some of Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America proposals that had to do with healthcare. And some of those include stuff we've talked about before, like HSAs, um, some of them are kind of generic, like providing greater access to technology, uh, empowering patients with more choices of plans and doctors. You know, some of these things that are a little bit, uh, you know, nebulous when when you talk about them in the abstract. So I guess I want to kind of dive down into that one first as we talk about what healthcare reform might look like here in the U.S. And I kind of want to go point by point through their commitment to America reforms. And the first one I'm going to go through is enabling states to approve a wider variety of health plans to facilitate more competition and affordability. And I guess my first question for you on that point is, is the problem with the states not approving a wider variety of health plans, or is it that more health plans aren't being asked to be approved? Well, I, I think what they're getting at here is the issue about, you know, under the Affordable Care Act, minimum levels of coverage and certain things that have to be covered and, and you know, not allowing these sort of catastrophic only plans to qualify, you know, at the employer level to, to be considered credible coverage. And mm -hmm. so that it seems to me like that's what the money saves. Well, you know, if somebody wants to buy just a catastrophic plan with a, you know, $1 million deductible, and obviously I'm being facetious here, they should be yeah. allowed to do that. And that will then, you know, their argument is that will facilitate more competition and affordability. And in some respects, yes, it will. And I'll use the analogy of, you know, of purchasing a car, you know, nobody says you can't buy a $200 car that barely runs. Mm -hmm. No, it's not the same product as a brand new vehicle or, you know, or, or et cetera. So in one respect, yeah, it would foster more affordability and the premium level. Um, I'm not sure that it really solves our healthcare cost issues because all you're doing in right. that scenario is saying, boy, better hope you don't get sick. Yeah. You know, it and to your point about the $200 car, in, in pretty much every state except where I live in Michigan, you wouldn't even be allowed to drive that on the road because it wouldn't pass a state inspection. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it, it's like, and I mean, I won't, we can go through point by point, but it's most of what they're talking about, Kevin McCarthy's thing, is mm -hmm. is really, in my opinion, window dressing. We've got to do something right. about healthcare. We can't do the really hard things that probably need to happen. So let's invent a lot of little things so we can at least say we're doing something. Right. Well, and I want to talk about that a little bit because this is supposedly the, the, the Kevin McCarthy plan. And I understand that it is window dressing, but I think for some of these things, we should explain why it's window dressing and not, you know, a, yeah, it's not exactly. a comprehensive plan yep. to lower the cost. 
So right. Right. staying on that one, would it be possible then if they were to implement that particular point about a wider variety of health plans, could you start seeing employers really kind of screwing their employees out of decent health care by opting for some of these plans that don't even really cover anything that have the, you know, facetious million dollar deductible? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it, it's why, you know, when the Affordable Care Act was passed, that in order for the employer not to face the penalty, they had to offer coverage that met certain minimums. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was exactly it. It was to keep employers from going, oh, yeah, I, I offer health insurance. You know, it's got a $5 million deductible and we, uh, you know, an 80% coinsurance. And well, that's not really coverage. Right. Um, so if they if they loosen that up a bit, then you're right. There are going to be employers who are going to, you know, take advantage of that um, and offer what is really very limited coverage. The next thing on here is they say encouraging more portable health coverage. What does that usually mean when when someone's advocating for portable health coverage? So I've never understood the logic behind this. And this idea of portable selling across state lines and Mm -hmm. things like that, you know, has been floating around for a long time. And the problem with this concept of selling across state lines or portable health coverage is healthcare is local. It's not like other products. You know, if I mm-hmm. want to buy a car from another state and have it shipped to me, I can do that, and that's fine. But I can't buy my health care from a hospital in Ohio when I live in North Carolina. Right. And so this idea of portability really doesn't work in healthcare because it's a product that has to be delivered locally. And that means that whatever insurance company you're in has to contract with the hospitals and the doctors in your area. It sounds good. It just really isn't. It really doesn't do much of anything. And I would argue too that for you know for patients that have you know if they have United Healthcare or Aetna, they can see any United Healthcare or Aetna doctor in any state. In the same way that you know we're right. a North Carolina company. I don't live in North Carolina, but we're on a, a North Carolina health plan. I can still see doctors the same way I would here in Michigan, right. uh, just as long as they're part exactly. of the network. Yeah, and I think what they're really talking about here, and again, it really doesn't do anything, is, right. well, I should be able to buy insurance comp- from a policy in in Nevada, you know, if it's cheaper. Right. Well, okay, but then it, they don't have my doctors, my network, that kind of thing. Right. right. Now, is your, what you're pointing out is, yeah, I have coverage here in North Carolina. If I'm traveling in Nevada, my insurance still works. Mm-hmm. You know, I can see anybody there. The next point on their commitment to America plan uh, is giving small businesses more options for competitively priced insurance for their employees. Um, that's one where I'm not 100% sure where that isn't being done already because businesses, including small businesses, can put out bids for the different insurance companies that are licensed in their state. Well, and, and the only way that you're going to give small businesses more options for competitively priced. There's two ways to do it. One is to force insurance companies to sell their product to small businesses where right now they don't have to. Hmm. You know, I can be an insurance company. I could I could literally only sell to large employers and I can choose not to offer my product to small employers. So one would be you'd have to force them into doing that. That's extremely unlikely. Um, the other gets back to this whole wider variety of health plans is to say, okay, fine, for small businesses, we're going to offer these really stripped-down benefits, catastrophic only. And again, that that makes it more affordable for the business. It doesn't really do anything for the employee. Mm-hmm. 
The next one on here is uh, health savings accounts, which we've talked about before, and, and I'll kind of skip over that one because as we've discussed before, it's one of those things that Americans that sound good in practice, but Americans don't ever really use them the way they're supposed to be used anyway. Um, the, the next bullet, removing barriers for employers to participate in direct contracting, high-performance networks, and centers of excellence. That sounds a little bit like the kind of weird direct primary care thing we talked about several months ago. Well, the interesting part about this is there are large employers that are currently doing that, mm -hmm. and there really aren't much barriers for large employers who want to do direct contracting. But this sort of flies in the face of logic. Um, the advantage of having your insurance company negotiating the contracts is they're negotiating for all the employers. You know, when a United or a Cigna or a Blue Cross or somebody is negotiating with a hospital for price, they've got the purchasing power of all of the people they cover in that area. Does anyone think that one individual employer is going to have that same purchasing power and going to drive a better deal? Um, you know, that just that sort of doesn't make sense from a from a purchasing power perspective. Also, are these employers really going to understand, for example, how to evaluate a center of excellence? Right. You know, if I'm, and I'll just pick a company, if I'm Lowe's, you know, or Home Depot or somebody, do I really have the expertise to look at something like a transplant program and evaluate them as a center of excellence? Mm -hmm. um, so, again, this, this feels good because it feels like, you know, private industry, free market, I get it. It just really doesn't work in this kind of environment. The next few points from the Commitment to America, like I said before, a little bit nebulous, you know, providing greater access to technology sooner, speeding approval of new treatments. I find that one a little funny because it's the same people that were questioning how quickly the COVID vaccines were approved. Um, and then you have empowering patients with more choices of plans and doctors, ownership of their health records and more accessible ways to get quality care, including telehealth. I'm not quite sure how you're going to expand that access because that seems pretty, you know, accessible to me right now and to most Americans. So I want to move on to the the Healthy Future Task Force Solutions, which they have a few about modernizing healthcare, because some of these at least appear on the face bill to be a little bit more substantial. The first one being implementing out-of-pocket caps on prescription drugs for Medicare beneficiaries. Um, that seems like an actual policy proposal compared to some of the other stuff from the Commitment to America plan. Yeah, and, and, you know, this could easily be done. Now, again, you're not going to get rid of the cost. You're just mm -hmm. moving it somewhere else. Right. So if we're going to implement out-of-pocket caps on pre prescription drug spending, who's going to pay for it? Well, it's going to have to be either the Medicare premiums are going to go up for those Medicare Advantage plans, or the government's going to have to assume that cost and increase taxes. I mean, that's just shifting who pays for something, not how much it costs. One of the ones on here that I think is kind of interesting is making some of the regulatory flexibilities of the COVID-19 public health emergency permanent in the healthcare infrastructure. What kind of flexibilities do you think they're referring to here? Boy, in that one, I, I really don't know. And, and the other thing that I think is interesting in that is um, a lot of those regulatory flexibilities, and I'm assuming they're talking about some of the flexibility that happened with how quickly, let's say, the vaccines were brought to market mm -hmm. or, you know, some of the hoops to, to speed things up on treatments, that kind of thing. Okay, that all, all makes sense in a pandemic, um, but I, it's also some of the things that you said, like you said before, were sort of criticized or questioned. You know, are we doing this too fast? 
Um, you know, and, and when you get into a, you know, a pandemic environment, you know, speed is of the essence. I'm not sure that that's a great idea in a non, you know, emergency situation like that. Mm -hmm. The one, the final bullet point on that one was incentivizing greater, uh, domestic production of medicines and medical supplies to mitigate supply chain disruptions. It was my understanding already that most of those drugs are manufactured here in the United States. Obviously, some are from German companies such as Pfizer. Um, but that one seemed a little odd to me. Well, and the other issue with that is there are a number of things that we're realizing in this country. We have a, pro a bigger problem with supply chain than other countries mm -hmm. where we can actually get things from other because we have a bigger labor issue in this country. Right. You know, um, we're having issues here with staffing and and labor issues. And so there are things that are harder to produce here um, than they are to actually buy them from from another country. So, um, I, you know, and I, you can make an argument for more domestic production. You're right. Most of them are produced here for a lot of other reasons. I'm not sure it necessarily solves any supply chain disruptions. Yeah. And the only one that is just coming to mind that isn't produced here. I, I believe is the, uh, at least from one particular brand, some of the contrast dye used in, in radiology, because I knew mm -hmm. there was a shortage for mm -hmm. a little while because of a plant in China. Yeah. Um, but yeah. that's the only one I can think of that caused, I mean, obviously with the, you have the baby formula shortage, but that's because they closed the major plant here in Michigan and right. without right. starting up another plant somewhere else to take up the slack. Some of the other healthcare priorities, that they have listed on here. A few of them are redundant, so I'll skip over those, like expanding telehealth. Um, one of them was uh, adding more short-term health plans, which aren't subject to the Affordable Care Act restrictions. What are some of these short-term health plans, and why or why not are they a good thing? So, and this is one where actually, and it's, it's not a huge fix, but I don't think is necessarily a bad idea. One of the things that we know from, you know, from some of the census data, et cetera, is there is a fair portion of the uninsured population that what they call is temporarily or transitionally uninsured. You may be between jobs mm -hmm. or, you know, you may be working seasonally and where you've got this period of time where you are uninsured for a matter of a few months, not, you know, long term. So let's say you're between jobs and you can't afford COBRA because that's really expensive, mm -hmm. but you don't want to be completely uncovered. Well, why shouldn't that individual be able to buy a catastrophic plan? Because if you know you're going to be between jobs for, you know, two months or for not some long period of time, you just don't want to have something really catastrophic happen and, and then it, it ruins you. You're not going to plan to get that elective knee surgery done when you're in that period of time. You'll wait right. till you've got insurance. So this may not be a bad sort of gap coverage scenario where you would offer sort of a bare bones catastrophic plan. It'd be very inexpensive um, for, for just that purpose. Um, and what they're talking about doing here, which I would agree with, is you limit those. So you can't buy one of those for five years. You know, you may mm -hmm. limit it to only a six month term to it. Um, and and that's, I think, could be a really helpful thing. Now, it's not a fundamental change in healthcare cost or anything, but it's a nice little uh, helper. Right. One thing on here that we've talked about before is the double dipping between the insurance companies and the, and the pharmaceutical companies with the uh, pharmacy benefit managers program. And I'm assuming that that's what they're referring to in this next bullet where they say stop middlemen from shifting drug costs onto patients, for example, incentivize rebates to be shared directly with, 
with patients. That sounds to me like uh, fixing or eliminating the, the pharmacy benefit manager market. Yeah, exactly. It's taking those rebates out of it, which will, to a large degree, solve some of that problem. If there's not money in it, people aren't going to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's getting that, that you know, quote unquote, middleman out of the system. And we might talk a little bit about how that will happen um, maybe it may happen soonish with Bernie Sanders taking over the help committee in the Senate, but that we'll have that a little bit later in the, in the program. One of the other things on here that I wanted to ask you about, because it's something that I haven't read too much about, and, and you may have been um, hearing from other insiders on this more, and that's examining long-term solutions to addressing physician payment reform. What sort of uh, proposals are there right now to reform how physicians get paid for doing services? Well, this has been a topic that gets ta- been tossed around forever, is that one of the problems we have in healthcare is physicians get paid for the more they do, the more they make. Mm-hmm. And that's an inflationary that, you know, surgeons get paid to do surgery. They don't get paid to be conservative. Um, doctors get paid to, you know, to cure you when you're sick, not keep you healthy. And so the idea is, well, how do we incentivize doctors to be smart? You know, how do we pay an orthopod to not do surgery? You know, to to look at, you know, let's take uh, low back pain. And can, is there a way that we can pay him to keep somebody off the surgical table but still help their low back pain? And it's a great concept, um, and it's something we need to keep sort of striving for. It's just incredibly difficult to do because unlike almost every other thing, what you're doing is you're paying somebody to not perform a service in, in, in reality. And so that it it's hard. What... what um, some people, Alan Entoven from Stanford and others have said is you've got to go to capitation. You've got to go to a, a scenario where doctors get paid a fixed amount sort of per member per month or per patient per month. Um, and that's it. And then they no longer have an incentive to, you know, do that surgery because they get paid a flat fee for whatever population that they serve. Now, the the detractors from that idea say, well, then you're incentivizing them to withhold care because now doing a service or seeing the patient or doing the surgery is an expense. And all we're doing there is, you know, incentivizing the doctor to not do what is necessary. Mm -hmm. It's a really difficult and challenging issue. Right. And especially since everything else in our, the way that we do things right now is, is a fee for service kind of thing. You know, you go to the store, you buy, or you buy a service, you have someone come fix your roof, you're paying them for that service. Um, so those, right. you don't, you don't call the plumber and say, can I send you a check? My pipes don't leak right now. Right. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how the plumber makes money. Yeah. Right. Although maybe the, that's where I keep thinking the subscription model keeps getting a little bit more and more traction. Cause at least then, um, to some people, it, it appears that you're paying to stay healthy as opposed to paying when you aren't healthy. Yeah, I really think personally that the the answer to this, that trying to fully get to a place where we get rid of fee-for-service medicine is just a bridge too far, that the answer to this is to start to create, um, whether it's additional payments, bonuses, or whatever, around the kind of outcome and performance you're looking for. You know, like, um, you know, an internal medicine doctor who is successful at, at 
um, improving their patient panel's average A1C and reducing diabetes or their average cholesterol number. Or their, okay, there's, there's incentive money to do that. So you're still paying them fee-for-service for each visit, but you're paying sort of bonus and reward money for what you want to come from those visits are them improving the overall health status of their of their patient population. Mm-hmm. Well, those are a lot and even of even that's really hard. Right. And so those are a lot of uh, the proposals that we've been hearing about right now to reform the current system that we have. And switching gears a little bit, Ron, as you know, almost every time there's an election, particularly a federal election for uh, the presidency, someone has got an idea of how to completely overhaul the system and replace it with something else. And I want to kind of talk about that in stages here for a moment. Um, one of them is the public option. And you heard President Biden campaigning on this back in 2020. Um, he wanted to add a public option to the Affordable Care Act. You know, it's so people can buy insurance from the federal government. Uh, Sally Pipes was writing in the conservative Washington Examiner. She's from the um, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Health Care Policy at the Pacific Research Institute. And she was um, criticizing some of the other states that have tried to adopt a uh, public option plan. As we've talked about before, interestingly enough, California, the state where you might expect it, it didn't even get come to a vote in their legislature because they knew that the governor there was not going to sign it. It was going to cost way too much of the state's budget. However, some states have claimed that they have created a public option. We talked about Colorado in the past, although that's not really a public option. It was forcing uh, insurance companies and doctors to have a low-cost plan. Um, Nevada and Washington have also passed laws that have public health insurance options, and New Mexico and Minnesota are considering it. She talks mostly about Washington State's Cascade Select program, which is their public option. Uh, and she said that only 800, or excuse me, less than 800 Washingtonians signed up for it the first year. And she said last year the enrollment grew to 6,335, which is about 3% of the state's uh, exchange population. So, Ron, I'm guessing, why is it that in the states where they have tried to adopt a form of a public option, why has it been seemingly less popular than some of the Affordable Care Act plans? Well, what the states are finding out is there are two problems that they have with the public option. And in Washington clearly found it out. Mm-hmm. Um, one is there's a lot of infrastructure that you've got to build to be an insurance company. It's not easy. Mm-hmm. You know, you've right. got to have a, a claims <laughs> engine that'll pay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, a claims engine that'll pay claims. You've got to have a, you know, a, a medical director. You've got to have all these, you know, you've got to have a sales function, a marketing function. I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure that's being built up. I mean, and, and it, it happens in any industry. When you look at as successful as Tesla's been done, has been, there was a lot of upfront costs that he bled a lot of money to create mm-hmm. a car company because it's, it's a lot of infrastructure. So they're finding out there's infrastructure involved that they don't have. Part of that creating that infrastructure has made some of these plans not very affordable because they don't have the economies of scale they don't have and they and they price the product based on their cost. Now, the second thing, and, and everybody's finding this out, is it, it doesn't work unless you can compel the providers, the hospitals and the physicians to want to get into it. And the state level, they have a really hard time doing that. And, and most of the state entities that I've seen do this, part of their problem is they say, okay, we're going to do this. It's going to be affordable. And the hospitals go, I don't think so. Or the doctors mm-hmm. say, I don't think so. Without a network, you've got nothing. Yeah. Um, and they're all, they're all figuring that out. It would be a problem for a federal um, 
public option unless the federal government ties it to Medicare. And that's always mm -hmm. been the idea, yeah. even though they don't like to say that is what they would say is, okay, you know, if you want to take Medicare money, you've got to be in the public option. And mm -hmm. they would sort of, it's a way because Medicare is so big, right. they would force physicians and compel them into it. And pointing out that it's hard to make some of these networks affordable, that as Sally Pipes writes in here, the average reimbursement, or excuse me, the public option reimbursement was capped at 160% of Medicare. Uh, and I don't know where she got this particular number from, but she says on average in the state of Washington, the the exchange pays providers at 174% of Medicare. So it pays less than some of the exchange plans. She also said premiums are about four or more than $400 a month, which is 30% higher than some of the private insurance in, in parts of that state at a state level. Could they, if they wanted to, could they tie it to seeing Medicaid or is that just not enough of an incentive by saying you don't get to see Medicaid if you don't take our public health option, or excuse me, public option plan. Um, well, so I don't, I don't know the legalities of whether they could, because remember, most of that money for Medicaid is actually still federal money. So I don't right. know, but it, let's assume they can from mm -hmm. a legal perspective. And I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know that. But um, boy, it would almost be the worst thing to do to tie it to Medicaid, because there's a fair amount of providers who, you know, physicians and physicians, mostly hospitals kind of have to take it. But physicians who would go, thank you, I was looking for a reason not to do this, because in many cases, Medicaid is such a horrible mm -hmm. payer that they're losing money and they're doing it more from a social mission. You know, it's almost like right. a charitable contribution. And the instant that somebody said, and not only do you have to do that, you have to do this. I think they would not only see a very sparse network for the public option, but it would also destroy their Medicaid network. Mm -hmm. One other thing they pointed out, and as you've talked about uh, just now with the, with how hard it is to build a network uh, in 2021, there was no public option in 20 of the um, the the 39 counties because providers wouldn't accept it. Um, she said right now, five of those 39 counties are without a public option plan. So obviously they've grown some there. But um, 20 of 39 counties is a pretty big number for a pretty big state mm -hmm. like Washington. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. talked about so, before. And that's the thing. Go ahead. Yeah, It's just not going to work unless you have some way to compel it. And that means either legally forcing providers into something, which is difficult to do because that's, you know, specific performance in the Commerce Clause, or what is the federal government has done in the past, which is tie money to it. I mean, a lot of people don't understand that the we have a, a national highway speed limit, not because the federal government can enforce that, they can't, but because they said, if you don't do it, we're not going to give you highway money. Mm -hmm. And in essence, that's what they could do to physician. No, no, you don't have to sign up with the public option and we don't have to let you into Medicare. Right. And, and so that, you know, they they could do that and compel it. I don't see how the states are going to do it and be able to compel it. So do you think for so because, for example, Washington, it, it appears to me, has an actual public health, public, public health option. Jeez. Washington actually has a public health, uh, public option plan, Cascade Select, whereas when we talked about with Colorado, what they did was they said that all the insurance companies have to offer a very low cost uh, plan. And oh, by the way, if they wouldn't get doctors on it, they would force the doctors onto it. Do you think that in the next, say, five to 10 years, we're going to start seeing some of these public option plans go away? Or do you think that they might migrate to something more to like what Colorado has? Well, and so there's and there's big questions about 
whether Col- what Colorado said about will force people into it, whether that's even constitutional, that would get challenged right. heavily. Um, you know, I think it's going to at the state level, it's going to be extremely difficult to whether you try to do what Colorado does or Washington to have something like that and have it be viable unless the state plans on subsidizing it heavily which will be difficult for the states to do. I mean, you know, Washington could do their piece. They could offer the doctors and hospitals all the money they wanted, and then they could just subsidize the heck out of it to make the premiums low. Mm -hmm. But that isn't what they're looking to do, and that doesn't help the overall cost. Um, I think the state-level stuff, it's going to be extremely difficult to do state-level public options. I think they're going to go, you know, they're going to be tried and not be very successful. You know, what Colorado's trying to do, I think, is going to be challenged under constitutional grounds, under, you know, trying to force somebody to into commerce they don't want to. I think that's going to be extremely problematic. Um, I, like I said, I think the only way public option works is the federal. Remember, they already have the infrastructure. They've got Medicaid. Right. So they've got the infrastructure to pay claims to do all that stuff. They've got an ability by tying the, you know, tying it to the Medicare reimbursement to compel, you know, large networks. Um, and that's the only way that it, it it's going to work, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me that we've seen California pass on trying to do this. We have not seen something like this come out of New York, which I would I would probably argue are the two most progressive states in the country right now. It's interesting to me that it's coming out of very progressive, but not not to the extreme, and that they still have very conservative areas in places like Colorado and Nevada and Washington, and then possibly New Mexico and Minnesota. You're not seeing it in places like Michigan, which now finally has a, a fully Democrat-controlled uh, government. You're, you're not seeing it in places like Maryland or uh, Pennsylvania, for that matter. So do you think there are other states that you, you, you could say maybe they'll do it down the road? Or do you think that you're going to um, just start seeing these fall apart? Well, I, I think that if you start to look at where it's happening and where it isn't, mm-hmm. To me, the common thread there is, why is it not happening in New York, California, highly progressive states? Why is it not happening in Michigan with a, you know, with a, a changeover in what the state government looks like there, et cetera? Mm-hmm. What, what do those states have in common that a New Mexico, a Colorado, a Washington doesn't? Well, California, um, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, those are all states that are worried about population and business drain. Mm-hmm. California and New York already know that their taxes are too high, and they're seeing a drain from businesses wanting and, and people wanting to leave, especially now where people can work remotely. You know, there right. there's concerns about people who are in states with high either state or city taxes, et cetera, going, the heck, I can keep working for my company that's in New York City. And I can live in the middle of Tennessee mm-hmm. or I can move to Florida where there's no personal income tax and just work remotely. Um, so, you, the, you know, Pennsylvania, you know, Michigan, New York, California, they're worried about that. And I think they look at this public option and go, I can't add more burden. Right. You know, as much as, you know, I might want to philosophically if I'm, you know, Gavin Newsom or, or whatever, I, I can't do it because I still have a, a state to run. You don't have that same problem in a California, New Mexico, a Washington. A, you know, they don't they don't have that same concern. So I think that's where it's sort of being tried. Mm-hmm. Well, the public health, public option is one of those things that gets brought up every uh, few years when when we have a presidential election. I have no doubt it will be brought up in twenty twenty four again. 
Um, but that's something that I think Biden is. I haven't heard him talk about it at all since he was running for election. So I don't think that's something that he's even got on his radar anymore. Um, although who knows, maybe his doctor talked to him about it. Uh, well, it would have been last week by the time this airs when he had his uh, physical. We will be continuing our conversation next week, talking about Senator Bernie Sanders and reforming Medicare. So be sure you are subscribed to this podcast. Ron, thanks for coming on. No problem. Thank you, sir. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the Flatlining Podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget you can engage with Ron and myself and other listeners of this program in our chat, available exclusively on the free Substack app. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Handley. Have a good week.